Amen. And now here's Pastor Pat Street with the message. Hi, it's so good to be together this morning. Well, hi, Jamie. Hi, Jerry. Hi, hi you guys online. I got uh, Julie and, and Angie and Teresa. Boys, good to see all of you. Hi, Renee. How you doing? Hi, Shirley and James. Darren, how you doing? Hey, um, wait a minute. Where's Waldo, though? I'm not finding... Where is Waldo? Not, can't find Waldo? Hmm. How many of you in the audience grew up with or maybe read to your kids or gave your kids the Where's Waldo books? People familiar with the Where's Waldo book. Could you always find Waldo? <laughs> not always. Sometimes it was really, really hard to find Waldo. I mean, he would blend in with the surroundings, and you had to look really hard in order to find Waldo. Well, today we're going to look at a similar but different book that I'm calling, Where's Jesus? Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we pray that you would honor us with your presence today, that by your Holy Spirit you would encounter us, that we would know that we are with you and that you are with us. So Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear, you give us eyes to see, that you give us hearts to receive what you have for us today, for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Amen. So welcome to everybody. You have stumbled across part three of our four-part series that I'm calling How to Study the Bible Well, especially when it comes to knowing how to understand and how to interpret the Old Testament. And we've been using the book of Esther as kind of our example in how to apply that. So this July series uh, that I've been doing, it's not our usual style of Sunday morning message or sermon uh, but it is being recorded as a class, and so you guys are the students today in the class, both online and in person. Thank you for doing that today. So let's jump into that. So in case you didn't already know this, the Old Testament was originally written in the Hebrew language. And there is something about Hebrew writing style or literature that's very unique and interesting, although sometimes it can be frustrating. Now, this is a style that you might have noticed if you've ever tried to read Genesis or Exodus, um, well, or the Psalms, or the prophets, or really anything in the Old Testament. You've come across this, even though maybe you weren't real sure what was going on. The thing about Hebrew style of writing, the way the ancient Hebrews wrote, that's so different from what we're used to in our, you know, the things we read today, is that Hebrew literature is super blunt, and it's very vague. I mean, it leaves out tons of details and just inserts characters and phrases with no explanation at all, and it just leaves us to guess and to wonder who it's about. For example, Right away, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, you're probably familiar with the Garden of Eden story with Adam and Eve. And so in chapter 3 of Genesis, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a talking snake shows up with no explanation. We're not told at all, well, who's that? 
What's that about? Where did the snake come from? How can it talk? Why does it want to trick Eve and Adam? We aren't told any of those details at all. And then, in the same story, in the same chapter, there's a new character that's introduced, a mysterious character who's introduced with no details and no explanation at all. Right away in Genesis 3.15, and this is God talking to the snake, to the serpent, and God says this in Genesis 3.15. He says, and I will cause hostility between you, the snake, the talking serpent, between you and the woman, Eve, and hostility between your offspring and her offspring. Not the offspring of the man, but some offspring of a woman that apparently doesn't need a man. God goes on to say, he, this offspring of the woman, he, who in the world we don't know, we're not told, he will strike the head of the snake, and you, the snake, will strike at the heel of this offspring of a woman. So there you go. How's that? Crystal clear, right? Yay! Talking snake and mystery guy. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there are all of these weird, obscure references to some mystery person who never shows up. For example, in Deuteronomy 18, 17, the Lord is talking to Moses, and the Lord says this to Moses. He says, I will raise up a prophet like you, Moses, from among the, their, your fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell the people everything that I command him. Who this? We aren't told. We don't know. It goes on, it's not just in the books of Moses, but in Psalm 2-7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Who is the son of God? You are my son. Today I've become your father. Only ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Who is he talking about? Who is God's son that this is being talked about a thousand years before the New Testament even begins? Who is it that will rule the entire world, the whole earth? Who will do that? Certainly not King David. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about his son Solomon. It's this mystery person. Psalm 1610. Uh, David writes this. You will not abandon me to the grave. Okay, so we can kind of deal with that. People go to heaven, whatever. Nor will you let your holy ones see decay. Who dies and gets buried and their body doesn't rot? Everybody rots. Except this mystery person. And we're not really told who it is. We're given a much bigger hint in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The prophet Daniel is having this vision of what's going on in heaven, in God's throne room. And he says, I saw someone like a son of man. Strange, mysterious phrase, right? I saw someone like a son of man coming, like ascending on the clouds to heaven. And he approached the ancient one. He approached the creator God and was led into his presence. And this person, this son of man, was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and language and nation would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. 
And so, as we read along in the Old Testament, we keep encountering this idea that someone amazing is coming, but the Old Testament ends, well, it really ends in the book of Esther. Esther is the last historical event of the Old Testament. I know that it's not the last book in the Old Testament, but remember from last week about genres, all the history books, the history genre are all um, organized together. So Esther is the last recorded event in the Old Testament history, and the guy never shows up. There is no snake-stomping Moses twin prophet, non-zombie, son-of-man ruling king. It doesn't come. The Old Testament is a story looking for its main character who never shows up. And then the New Testament is all about answering all the mysteries, all the questions of the Old Testament concerning who this hero is. And the New Testament does that brilliantly over and over and over. The purpose, though, of the Old Testament is to point to and to prepare us for Jesus Christ. That's the entire purpose of the Old Testament, to point to and to prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. This isn't my idea. Um, Jesus is the one who said that's what the Old Testament was about. He said it. I'm just going to pick a couple places where he said it, where he said all the entire Old Testament scriptures are about him. In John 5, 39, Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, he says, you know, you diligently study the scriptures, which of course is the Old Testament. New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he's saying you diligently study what we call the Old Testament because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify all about me. That's not the only place he said something like that. In Luke chapter 24, verse 25, this is on Easter Sunday, the first resurrection day. So Jesus has raised from the dead, and he's walking along a road with two of his disciples, going to a place called Emmaus. And they're saying, he's asking them, why are you so sad? And they're saying, oh, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened about Jesus. We thought he was the Messiah, but he got killed, and yada, yada. So... Anyway, here's how Jesus replies to them. You foolish people. <laughs> you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then catch this. And then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then we've already talked about this in the previous message, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, don't think that I've come to say the Old Testament doesn't have any value. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm not abolishing the writings of Moses or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. I'm the answer to all their questions. Everything that was written, the mystery man is me. The mystery of the Old Testament is solved in the New Testament. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus is the mystery man. He is everything that they've been hoping for and waiting for and longing for. The good news is that the devil-defeating, 
world-saving, grave-conquering, almighty king of the universe has arrived, and his name is Jesus. That's the gospel, you guys. That's the good news. It isn't only Jesus that said that. The first followers of Jesus understood that that's what the good news was. The Old Testament has come true in Jesus. Uh, here's one place. In Acts 8.32, this is where one of Jesus' disciples or followers named Philip encountered a guy um, along the road. This guy was uh, a eunuch. Uh, he was a guy who could be trusted to look after the queen, the Ethiopian queen. And so... This guy was reading the scriptures, this Ethiopian eunuch. And so he was reading this passage from Isaiah about, it says, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter as a lamb is silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was humiliated, received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? And this guy is reading the only scriptures that he has available and has no idea who this is about. It's the mystery man. And so, he asks Philip, tell me, was the prophet Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? I don't know. I don't get it. So beginning with that same scripture, Philip told him the good news, the gospel, that this is Jesus Christ that's being talked about. That Jesus is the mysterious, sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the whole world. Jesus is the Old Testament holy one who dies but doesn't decay. He's the answer to Psalm 16:10. That's why Peter quoted that in Acts chapter 2:26 in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He quotes Psalm 16:10 and Peter says, "I can brothers, I can tell you confidently that David died and David was buried and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him that he would place one of his descendants on the throne." And so David, seeing what was ahead a thousand years into the future, David was speaking about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to the grave nor did his body see decay. Psalm 16 is all about Jesus. Jesus is the eternal exalted son of man in the Old Testament. I read to you the Daniel 7 verse 13 passage that Daniel saw one like the Son of Man. This is what Jesus is talking about over and over again in the Gospels when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. He is always pointing his, uh, anyone who's listening back to Daniel chapter 7, saying, I am the fulfillment of this thing you've been waiting for. For example, in Matthew 17, 9, Jesus says, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Until this mystery figure in Daniel 7 has been raised from the dead and ascends to his throne. Then you can tell everybody all about it. He said in Matthew 25, 31, talking about himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne. He's echoing Daniel 7. Do you see that? That he is the Almighty One that will rule the world. Um, Matthew 26, 63, he says to the high priest who asks him, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Son of God, Jesus? And Jesus says, yep. You got that one right. But I'm saying to all of you, 
in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, just like it says in Daniel 7, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, so if in fact the entire Old Testament is all about Jesus, always pointing us to him, preparing us for his coming, where's Jesus in the book of Esther? I mean, the New Testament doesn't quote from Esther at all. Matter of fact, Esther, the book of Esther doesn't even mention God at all. So where's Jesus? Okay, in order to find Jesus in the book of Esther, we need to learn a new word in our quest to study the Bible well, and that word is typology. Typology. This will be on the quiz, by the way. <laughs> typology when it comes to um, biblical interpretation, typology means events or persons or statements in the Old Testament that are seen as types, things that foreshadow uh, the events or aspects of Jesus Christ that's described in the New Testament. For example, Jonah might be seen as a type or typology of Christ because he emerged from the fish's belly after three days, right? And, you know, like I say, he appeared to rise from death. So it's seen as a type. It's a typology. It's a hint about the coming of Jesus and what he's going to do. Typology is not the same as prophecy, though. Typology is much less direct. It's more hidden. You got to hunt for it, sometimes very intently. It's like trying to find Waldo. Sometimes you really, really have to concentrate to find Jesus in the Old Testament to find the typology. So, now that you understand typology, what I'm talking about, so this is a question. This is a question for those of you online and those of you in the room and those of you that have enrolled in the class, all 50-some of you, you got a hint that I was going to be asking this, so some of you might be ready, okay? So, now that we understand typology, what in the events or persons or statements of the book of Esther reminds you of Jesus? I'm, I'm asking, I'm literally asking, is there anything from your reading of Esther that reminds you of anything you know about Jesus? Remember, these things are kind of, you know, mystical, a little symbolic. They're not direct. They're not in black and white, but just reminds you of that. Yeah, Kirk. Having to have faith in the moment. Okay. Having to have faith in the moment that God's going to get you through it. Sure. Okay, that's good. Anything else that specifically makes you think of Jesus? Maybe that Esther did or said or anything like that? How about online? Are you getting any responses online? Oh, there are a little, yeah, I forgot. There's like a minute lag behind online. Okay. Good one. Esther, who said, you know, if I die, I die. She was willing to sacrifice herself to try to save her people. Very good. That sure feels like Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, Ramsey. Good. That's great. So uh, Ramsey was saying that um, Jesus wasn't kind of who they would expect 
to come and save them. He didn't quite fit their preconceived idea, and neither was Esther. She was Jewish. How did Esther get to be queen in Babylonia, right? Very unexpected savior of the people. Good, good seeing that. Any other typologies from the book of Esther? You seen any, Jean? Yep, Jean needs audio. Um, one person said sacrifice for the good of the group. Yep, sacrifice. Um, and very close to that, Esther giving her life to approach the king to save the Jews. Ah, very good. Yeah, the sacrificial typology. Good. Very good. Okay. All right. Well, here's, here's a couple maybe um, that I saw. Uh, I see a typology of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was doing that where Esther says... Um, Fast for me. Oh, this is in Esther 4.16. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day, and we'll do the same. If I, if I must die, I die, which we've already mentioned. But in Matthew 26, Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, says, you know, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, okay. If I die, I die. Oh, Lord, your will be done. So I see an echo, a typology of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus being exalted to the throne. I can see that in the book of Esther. In, uh, oh, like Esther 5, verse 1, it says, on the third day of the fast, Esther enters the, her, uh, puts on her robes, enters the inner court, and the king is sitting there. And when he saw Esther, he welcomed her and, hand, and held out the gold scepter to her. So she was welcomed to the throne. Okay, like Jesus was welcome to the throne, okay? Um, I, here's something I want to toss in there. This is pretty important. Anytime you see the phrase, on the third day, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New, pay close attention to that. So even here in Esther, it says, on the third day of the fast, Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to sinful men, he is going to be beaten, he is going to be crucified, and on the third day, he will rise. He says that over and over again because throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, the third day, is always, um, it's like on the third day there's victory. On the third day there is uh, vindication. Um, and so Jesus rising on the third day fits that whole typology, that whole pattern, that it's a fresh start. It's, you know, a turning point in everything, just like it was for Esther when she went on the third day. Um... Of course, you mentioned the queen who risks it all, even to the threat of death. That's a preview of Jesus who gave up and risked, gave up his divinity in order to take on humanity. You know, Philippians 2, 9 that says, um, because of the obedience of Jesus, God exalted him to the highest place, to the throne. I think... You know, this kind of works in another direction too, not only typology of Jesus, but there's one more I want to give you that I think is important. I feel like there's even a foreshadowing or a typology of Satan's plot to kill Jesus in the plot to kill the Jews that, that Haman did. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so um, Haman like Satan, Satan actually means accuser. It's not a name of something, it's a title. Satan means accuser. So Haman, like Satan, the accuser of God's people, thought that he would win by killing Mordecai. But Esther, like Jesus, 
reverses that plan and defeats Haman, just like Jesus defeated Satan. Evil thought that it was going to win, but God is faithful and just and always keeps his promises. It says in Colossians 2.15, in this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Shamed them publicly, just like Haman was publicly shamed. Jesus triumphs over the, the Satan, the accuser, the powers and the principalities on the cross. Jesus triumphs over them on a, on a pole, on a stake, just like Haman was humiliated when he thought that he was going to be the one that was exalted. See, here's why I think this matters. I think that the Old Testament was intentionally a mystery, brilliantly written in the very blunt, open-ended Hebrew style in order to trick Satan, in order to trick the enemy. I think that God was very clear that it needed to be written in that way so that Satan wouldn't quite know what's going on. At least that's what it says in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 2.7, the Apostle Paul writes, the, the wisdom that we speak of, this is the mystery of God. The mystery of the Old Testament. All of these shadows and unanswered questions. The mystery of God, his plan that was previously hidden even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But check this. But the rulers of this world have not understood God's mysterious plan. Because if they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. They wouldn't have done it if they knew who it really was and what was really going to happen. So it almost seems like part of the reason that Jesus is so hidden in the Old Testament was to trick the, the serpent, to trick the Satan. Even though, of course, the devil reads the scriptures. The devil knows the Bible, has it memorized. That's why when Jesus was being tempted uh, in the wilderness, he quoted scripture to him. You better believe the devil studies the Bible, right? But this plan was still hidden. It was still shrouded in mystery for a purpose. And it makes no sense. This mysterious plan of God was so illogical, so unexpected that the powers of hell never saw it coming, that somehow putting Jesus, the king of glory, to death, that somehow by doing that, that would be the very thing that destroys the power of death forever and ever. They didn't see that coming. And so it had to be hidden and only hinted at so that we would see that Jesus is Lord, while at the same time it's hidden from the devils and the powers of darkness. I mean, this is the greatest plot twist of all time. God's brilliant. What, what an amazing author. That the enemy, the devil, thought that by killing Jesus, that would be the end of God's plan. But it played right into God's hands. And you guys, God's still doing that for us. Do you know that? That when demons try to destroy your life with catastrophes and pandemics, that when the devil sends pain and problems your way, God's plan still is always to turn those things inside out to fix and redeem every Satan scheme. 
So look for and find Jesus in every aspect of your life this week. Look intently, as if you're hunting for Waldo in the picture. Look intently, carefully, and prayerfully, asking in every situation that you find yourself in in the coming week, whether it's something that's good or bad or just plain boring, where's Jesus? Where is Jesus in this? And be looking for those hints. Be looking even for those typologies of situations that you're in, of songs that you hear, of movies that you watch. You will see Jesus everywhere once you start looking. And he's there to comfort you, and he's there to lead you, and he's there to give you confidence that he is in control. If we can find Jesus even in the book of Esther, you can find him in the chaos of quarantine too. I promise you that. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, reveal yourself in every way and in any way. Oh, Lord God, thank you for the brilliance of your plan, the mystery that you kept hidden from the wrong people to reveal it to the right people who happen to be sitting here and online in this room right now. So, Lord, we pray that more and more you would reveal the mystery of the cross to us. We pray that you would reveal how you are at work, even when we don't see it happening. Amen. Amen. Hey, here's the uh, homework for those of you that have officially enrolled in the Bible study. Can we have that slide? Yep. So you might want to take a picture of that or pause it if you're online or whatever. This is the homework for you to email to me this week. What is meant by typology? What in Esther reminds you of Jesus? And then give one example from the Old Testament, anywhere in the Old Testament, that is fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. Okay? Thanks so much for sharing this time today.